0: It's a kind of question that classroom teachers, it sends the chills down their back. Kids are sitting there and they they talking about something that's really interesting and somebody raises a hand and said, is this gonna be on the test? And it's a, if it's not, you know, close my book and I'll wait until something important comes along.
1: Welcome to another episode of School 2.0, conversations about education and everything else. Today, we're gonna to focus on the big question. What is school for? Why do we send people to school? What is the purpose? And today we have on the show historical sociologist David Labry, who's going to walk us through why he thinks this question is actually really complicated and difficult and why it couldn't really be any other way. So when we say, what are schools for? We say we're sending kids to schools so that they can become educated for the world. But what does that mean? Does it mean preparing them to go on and compete in the economy to get a job? Does it mean them finding their appropriate place in the economy, whether that's the job they want or not? Do we mean to be good democratic citizens? Do we mean to be well-rounded people? Those goals don't always align with each other. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And schools serve a lot of different people. So preparing kids for the world for whose benefit? Is it for the student's benefit? For the taxpayer's benefit? for the benefit of future employers. And David Labrie is going to say that the, the difficulty with school has always been that it serves a lot of different interests. And he's going to say that's not really a bad thing. It can't be any other way. School evolved in this really messy process where different people wanted to see different things from it. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. So David Labrie is a Lee L. Jacks Professor Emeritus at Stanford University's Graduate School of Education. And his research focuses on historical sociology of American schooling, including things like the evolution of high schools the growth of consumerism and how that's driven schools the origin and nature of education schools etc He's written several books, but I want to mention a few of them that I really like myself and have found beneficial. The first is called How to Succeed in School Without Really Learning, The Credentials Race in American Education. We'll talk about that book a little bit. Another is Someone Has to Fail, The Zero-Sum Game of Public Schooling. And his latest, which we'll talk about later in the episode, is called A Perfect Mess, The Unlikely Ascendancy of American Higher Education. So I hope you enjoy this fascinating interview. David Labrie, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on,
1: Kevin. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, for for those who don't know of uh, David's work, uh, we're going to talk a lot about it today. It's been really influential to me. And I feel like uh, a lot of folks who don't know his name should, if you think about education and care about it. So the first question I have for you is that if you ask most people what the purpose of education is, they're going to have a fairly simple answer. It's to educate kids full stop. As I read your work through uh, of the books and articles you published, it seems like your work devotes itself to making that answer a lot more complicated and saying there's a lot more there than just to educate kids. Uh, is that a pretty accurate description of kind of what you've tried to do in your work? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, let, well, let's talk about how it's more complicated than that. Uh, when we say the answer, the purpose of education is to educate kids, um, you want to make it more complicated. So let's talk about how that story is more complicated. What are people missing?
0: Yeah, I mean, partly it comes from a uh, my background as a historical sociologist. So I'm thinking, how did schools come about? Why do we have them in the first place? And it's pretty clear when you look at the uh, historical record that the reason we have systems of universal public schooling that started emerging maybe 200 years ago, um, had nothing to do with learning, especially learning the academic curriculum. Uh, the, uh, the, The basic creation story of public schooling is that we have public schools as a way of supporting the development of a nation state. It's the way in which you take a bunch of individuals scattered around the countryside each with their own parochial affiliations and their own sense of self, and somehow mold them together into some kind of an imagined community that calls itself America. Um, there's a wonderful book I like by Eugene Weber called uh, talks about that talks about the process of how you turn peasants into Frenchmen. <laughs> and he looks at the story of the development of schooling in France and how it It's there to sort of create a thing called France that never really existed before. Um, And schools are good at that. They socialize people, they provide them with a common set of skills. Schools create even a common language. The French language didn't exist until the French schools happened because the schools adopted Parisian French and spread it all around the countryside. And that's now standard French. It's creating an entire, culture that wasn't there before. And you have to learn that, but it's not the same thing as sitting down and learning social studies and math and English literature in your various classrooms in school. So, way back at the beginning, we don't have schools because of learning. Learning is something that we do in schools once they're in existence.
1: Right. So when we say the simple answer is schools are there to educate kids, full stop. The first, uh, I guess the first complication is what do we mean by educate? So does, I guess most people think like, yeah, like math, uh, language. And, and you're saying, well, but the historical purpose of school, first and foremost, just uh, has always been, at least from the first, to create citizens. And that's a little bit different then learning you. math, learning science, things like that.
0: Yeah, and you look back, it was a, a, a distinctly political vision of what schooling was. Uh, not a curricular vision, but a political vision. You look at Horace Mann and the formation of the common schools in the United States in the second quarter of the 19th century. It was all about trying to shore up this very shaky, brand new republic in a world that didn't uh, pose that posed real challenges to the survival of a republic, and the idea is we need to have schools to create a citizenry that has a sense of being part of a larger community. If not, this whole American project's going to fall apart. Well, that's a pretty big vision, <laughs> and it was successful, by the way. That worked.
1: Right. I mean, we're not saying that that's a bad thing, but I guess we're saying that on some level, that's not quite the same as making sure individuals are educated for like their individual success. So this right. kind of leads me to most of your work as I've read it has focused on, um, I guess what I think you call the three purposes that education has had. And one of them we're talking about now, which is democratic equality. I believe that's the term you use, but there right. are two others. There's uh, social cohesion, if I remember your term, right. And then there is uh, social mobility so let's talk about these two. And I think for most people, social mobility is the one that they're going to be really familiar with. Let's talk about yeah. that one first. What does that mean? Yeah,
0: yeah it's interesting. The, uh, again, at the very beginning, uh, the idea that schooling was going to help with social mobility was not entirely obvious. Uh, that certainly wasn't why we founded schools. There was a certain sense from the very beginning that schooling was something that people figured was useful uh, in a sort of basic sense. I mean, this, is, uh, this country was founded as a commercial society, basically. And if you're engaged in commerce, you better be able to know how to read and write and count or else you're not gonna be able to do business. So there's a certain practical way in which literacy and numeracy is an essential fact for getting along and succeeding. And schools are doing that as part of what they do. Uh, it wasn't, though, really until maybe the 20th century that we started getting this sense that if you wanted a good job, you had to school was the way to get it. Beyond this notion of just numeracy and, and literacy, this idea that if you want a, the more education you get, the better job you get. That's a very 20th century uh, phenomenon. I mean, one of the interesting things about the American experiment is that there was a massive increase in schooling in the 19th century in the US. By the end of the century, uh, the typical teenager had completed eight years of schooling. That's way more schooling than other people in the world had. But during this entire century, the skill level of the workforce was going down. We were building factories. Uh, the average skill level of the worker was declining while schooling was going up. That's very contradictory to what we would think. It's only in the 20th century that we've seen this notion that the school, that's, that schooling actually is feeding you into the best jobs and that suddenly skill matters. Right. It didn't matter the first.
1: So it seems like there's then... Uh, um a difference between saying that I go to school because it's going to teach me math and it's going to teach me to read and it's going to teach me to be successful. And then the other side saying, I go to school to get a diploma or certificate, and that will be that my entryway into jobs. And it seems like yeah. as the 20th century has gone on, it's really the emphasis was less on the former and it shifted to the latter. Um, yes, I mean, you talk to high schoolers today and you ask them, you know, why are you in school? And I'm sure most of them are going to say, well, I, I want to get my diploma. Right? <laughs> yeah. So you have, uh, towards this, you have one of the best book titles I think I've ever heard, How to Succeed in School Without Really Learning. And it it seems like that's part of the idea, right? You're talking about the rise yeah. of, I guess, what we would call credentialism today?
0: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And it's you know, it creates a an issue that you've been interested in in your own work, and that is the, that this strange incentives that are built into the school system that in some ways work against learning because students learn early on that what matters in this class is getting a good grade. Uh, And getting a good grade means doing well on tests. And doing well on tests means knowing what kind of things they put on tests. one of the things that struck me, it's a kind of question that classroom teachers, it sends the chills down their back. But kids are sitting there and they, they're talking about something that's really interesting. And somebody raises a hand and said, is this going to be on the test? And it said, if it's not, you know, close my book and I'll wait until something important comes along. Because, hey, i got to invest my time in an efficient manner to get myself where I need to be. And I shouldn't be learning, uh, learning a lot of stuff. That's not going to count.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I always like to say as a former high school teacher and as now a college professor, you can go through the entire semester and think that this is a great, wonderful thing. And there's a lot of learning happening and that's what, what's really important. But at the end of the semester, you become very aware on exactly how much the grade economy really is, is, is the economy that schools operate in. Every email you get at the end of the semester is about grades Uh, everything you're doing as a professor teacher is about grades. Uh, Everything the administration cares about at that point is about grades. It seems like what that's a byproduct of um, this idea that really school is about the credential and then the learning is kind of secondary. So, so we had two purposes that we've talked about for schooling. The first was democratic equality, which was really there from the start. It's about schools preparing people to be citizens. That's really the important part. The second purpose we've just been talking about, social mobility, which is about you individuals use school in a, as a way to get ahead in the economy. I think most people would say, yeah, okay, those two purposes make a lot of sense to me. I'm pretty aware that that they both kind of play a part. But then you have this—you uh, talk about this third purpose in schooling, which, if I remember correctly, you call social cohesion. Social efficiency. Social efficiency. That's right. Other, I think yeah, other people yeah. would call it social cohesion. Right. And that's that's one that I think most people, if they thought about what schools do, most of them might not be as aware of or or think about. But it's been a very real shaper of schools. So, what is what is social efficiency, and how has it shaped schools?
0: Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's in some ways, I think, the dominant theme in educational policy circles. When you're talking about politicians, when you're talking about uh, uh, Senate committees, when you're talking about presidential candidates, schooling is, they're talking about, we need to, they use the term invest. We need to invest in schools. And schools are the key to our future. They're the key to economic growth. Uh, they're the engine of economic growth. And it's a vision that sees schools as a way to pro- provide students with the kinds of productive skills they're going to need in order to be productive members of the workforce. And that the more schooling they have, the more productivity they'll have. And productivity drives economic growth. And so the economists like to talk about that as human capital. And so for them, the whole enterprise is uh, an exercise in human capital production, which is a surprise to a lot of teachers who never thought of themselves, we get up in the morning, I'm going to go to teach today because, hey, I'm going to produce some human capital. <laughs> and a lot of students aren't thinking the same thing is, they're trying to get ahead and get a good grade. Teachers are trying to manage the classroom and and transmit some subject matter that they have a passion about and they think is important for people to know. But that larger inclusion the, the, the idea of investing in future economic growth is a powerful rationale for why the public should spend a huge amount of money on schooling. Um, I mean, you think about it, that's actually not an obvious point, why it is that, for example, state government's the biggest single ex- cost is education. Why do we do that? Why do we invest so much in it? Is it to help people get ahead? Is it To make them good citizens? You know, What's the payoff? There's We're spending the money on that instead of a lot of other things we could do. Yeah. So the benefit.
1: Yeah, I guess when you look at speeches from politicians and when they're talking about education, they very rarely talk about Uh, you know, we're investing in this to allow each student to pursue the path they want to pursue. It's like politicians may not not care about that. Maybe that's important to them. But I guess if you want to get investment in schools and you want to justify budgets and things like that, you have to say, well, here's why this is good for the country. Here's why this is good for our state. We'll produce more doctors or whatever. Um, Yeah. So, so Another theme then that runs through a lot of your work is there's this public good aspect of schooling and there's this private good aspect of schooling. Let's talk about that for a little bit because you kind of mentioned it a bit when you mentioned the teachers. Teachers and students don't think of themselves as going through this process to benefit the public (laughs) good, right? They, like, I care about my student and my student cares about doing what she wants to do when she grows up. Uh, But that's not what everyone cares about in schools. So so let's, let's talk a little bit about that distinction and how that cashes out. You now
0: I think it's an important issue when you think about schools because schooling is both a public good and a private good. What's the difference? I mean, the key thing about a public good is that it's something whose benefits everyone enjoys, whether or not they contributed to them. Um, you know, clean air as a public good in the sense that even whether or not you pollute or you save pollution, you still benefit by having clean air. Um, you know you can think of other benefits like that. And so if you're thinking of schooling as a mechanism for producing good citizens, uh, we all benefit by having fellow citizens that are capable and intelligent can then vote well and are law-abiding. this is like this is a, a benefit that we can all enjoy even if our own kids don't go to school or if I don't have any kids. Um, and the same with this idea of uh, in investing in economic development. We have, uh, we benefit from being in an economy that is growing and there's a tax base that's growing and uh, that's going to take care of me when I retire. Uh, part of it, the, the thing about a public good is that it provides a rationale for why it is that I should be investing in other people's children, which is a big problem. I mean, most of the taxpayers are not do not have kids in school. They don't have kids at all. They're too old, they're too young. Why am I paying for other people's kids to go to school? Uh, and if we're thinking about schooling just as a private good, that it's for me to get a degree so that I get a better job than you do. Um, that's that's a very much of a private vision. I own the diploma, you don't. I get the benefit, you don't. There's very little rationale for me to invest in your ability to get the job instead of me get the job. That's uh, counterproductive. But when you're talking about something where we all can benefit by having economic growth, then that justifies why I should be called upon to pay taxes or an institution that I don't directly have contact with, I don't, I don't go to school, so it's still a good thing. So that's the rationale behind
1: it. But then that opens up tricky issues for um, for people like teachers, because, like we said, on the one hand, teachers, when they go to school, they care about teaching the kids in front of them so that the kids in front of them benefit. But realistically, teachers in public schools are kind of working to serve the more public good rationale, which is kind of where their tax money, where their salaries from tax money comes from. So one thing I like to do in my classes, again, I've been influenced by by your work for many years now. When when my students and I talk about the purposes of schooling, one of the first questions I ask them is: let's brainstorm a list of all of the stakeholders. In education, all the people who care about education. Right? idea. So, so you have students, and then you have parents, and then you have teachers and administrators, and the general public. Um, employers are one that they bring up, and we talk about well, what are each of what do each of these groups care about? And one of the things my students usually realize is that um, each group cares about different things. Yeah. So yeah. kids care about. I want to get a diploma. I want to get a job. Parents care about, I want to do as best for my kids as possible. Taxpayers care about things that are very different, which is like, sometimes it might even be, I, maybe this is the job you want, but the job that you will serve society best is here. So I can't really go there. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, yeah, I, I think that's always kind of an interesting, um, dilemma so how does this cash out how does all of this cash out in terms of like things like policy debates in education and the way that uh we think about education in the public consciousness
0: by the way just to go back to your i love that little exercise you do which is a great idea um to get start thinking about all the stakeholders and it's it it hit me when i started thinking about teaching as a profession that's such a a peculiar profession in a lot of ways. And a question that triggers that is to say, who's the client? Who is the client? Well, you know, if you're a doctor, it's the patient sitting across from you and the examining room is the client. The the lawyer has a client, but who's the client? Is it the student? Well, the student's not paying you. And the student doesn't even necessarily want to be there. They kind of have to be there they're the object, but they're not necessarily the client. Is it the? Is it the administrator? Well, they're your employer, but they're not calling the shots in that sense. So the parents are out there. Yeah, the taxpayer, the school board uh you know these are it, yes they're all they're uh, all in some way and it's like and how do you how do you try to please all of those people out there and um, it's almost impossible it's like uh, uh yeah really it makes t- people recognize that that's a really tough job yeah how do yeah you make a good job and how do you make everybody feel like you're doing a good job there's no clean cut this point, like the, the client, uh, was declared not guilty. So I, I win. I'm a good uh, professional. What's the metric for the teacher? Eh, right. You know?
1: Yeah. It, um, I guess you mentioned doctors originally, and I, I think that in some ways uh, I've talked to some doctors who feel like, and of course some other people who use doctors who feel like this has been a problem with insurance money being brought in to fund, Right. The doctors care. Right. At some point, the doctor feels like they're balancing this act between serving the person who's in front of them, but potentially also serving the insurance company who has rules of their own. And hey, by exactly. the way, we're paying your your salary. So yeah. there's this dilemma. And yeah, teachers have to feel that a lot, although I suspect administrators feel it more than teachers because they're the ones who have to justify, you know, like getting more funds, but doing right by the students and pleasing the taxpayers but also pleasing the parents who are part of your school i mean are
0: there any policy debates where by the way that's one of for a teacher's point of view i think that's one of the definitions of a really good administrator is that somebody who shelters you from a lot of the flat coming in from the outside you know they're the ones that provide a little bit of protective barrier they're the intermediaries so that you don't feel the direct pressure coming in and Mm -hmm. allows the space to do your work that's that's like that's that's a valuable role yeah
1: so are there any policy areas where where this sort of analysis this way of looking at schools is particularly evident um i mean one that i can think of is debates over various types of school choice because the argument of school choice advocates will generally be will let the money follow the child because then the child is in charge or at least the family is more in charge but then the anti-school choice advocates will say, um, will often appeal to things like the public, uh, the, the, the democratic equality rationale and say, but these are public spaces and we don't want to privatize these spaces. Um, I mean, that's an area where it seems like this analysis is really, um, really helps you kind of figure out where each side is coming from.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes for a very delicate problem, because you're you're thinking, okay, this is a public good, we are taxing everybody to pay for it. Um, once you're doing that, then it's a little, it becomes tricky to say, okay, we'll give you the money and now do whatever you want with it. I mean, that's the kind of concern. You can see the sort of issue is, follow the money is the basic rule of politics. And if you're sending out the money, the the strings attached are yours because after all, they're money. And so the the rationale behind a public school system is like, let's have a school board that represents the taxpayers and that governs the system and makes sure it's doing well. But the school choice movement is saying, wait a minute, that system maybe doesn't work very well. It can be stultifying in lots of ways. We need more freedom there. But then the, the question is how much freedom can you grant when you're using public money and when you turn from being totally irresponsible and saying, yeah, we'll just do what you want.
1: Yeah. And when the, the, one of the big rationales for school has been a public good rationale, whether it's economic good that this helps our economy overall or a public good, like democratic equality, because private schools, you can see why that would be pretty scary for folks who are committed to the public good rationale. Yeah, let's let's see. Um, So I'm going to follow up
0: on that in a second, because I know you and I both have an interest in the role that markets play in school. Yeah. And that, you know, we're talking about the government role here. It's government money, government guidance. And the, uh, the danger is if you build up a huge bureaucracy that then. Constrains what's going on in the classroom and ends up intruding on the teaching and learning process in the name of good fiscal management. Um, but the so what the rationale that comes from the school choice movement is one that's more based on a markets logic and saying you know in the economic marketplace. Uh, we actually benefit by having a free and open market where people are pursuing their own interests uh, and their own uh, desires. And the benefits that accrue from that are not because people are intending to make everybody else better off, but because the accumulated impact of all their efforts creates a, a, a public benefit. Uh, at the end. It's this sort of invisible hand notion. Uh, We all are better off if if people, if you're living in an unmanaged economy than in a highly managed one. And and so the the generation of a public good is not necessarily that comes from only from public governance. It can happen from other ways and that makes complicated story.
1: Right. I mean, it goes to, uh, you know, Adam Smith's famous quote, which I can only paraphrase about it's, it's not from the altruism of the butcher and the baker that you get the best bread, right? It's their self-interest. So I guess this, the, the market folks will say that if you harness people's self-interest, the school, uh, is, is under competition for consumers money, that they will produce the best product. Um, of course, there are folks who dispute that quite heavily. Um, yeah, another area that, that this that the analysis that you bring up about these three purposes is really interesting, and, and I, we've talked about it a little bit, is the idea of grades. Um, mm. It blows my students' minds when I tell them that historically the idea of a grade, especially a letter grade or number grade that leads to a certification, was not there from the first of schools. Like, when you went to school, in colonial America, you would never have gotten a grade, and you would never have had that grade lead to a certification for schools. This was a fairly recent invention. If I recall correctly, it was really late 19th century is when the A through F marking system, and it changed yeah. everything. It, it really changed everything. I don't know if you um, want to speak to that a little bit in terms of how grades and certification have just really changed. The whole landscape of education
0: yeah i mean it's it starts happening at the point when you're no longer thinking about this as simply a process of learning but you're thinking that now you need some sort of metrics because the learning now turns into something more tangible like advantage in the job market and so you move beyond a sort of abstract notion that I went to school, I learned stuff, but I need to come away with something. And what is the something? Well, the something ultimately is going to be a diploma. Uh, You know, you apply for a job and it says only college graduates are going to be considered for this position. All right, I got to have a college degree. How do I get a college degree? Well first of all, I have to go to school, and then I have to do well in school, and then I have to get into the college, and how do I demonstrate that I'm doing well? I need I need to show something. I need to show a grade for a class. I need to show that I've accumulated credits toward a degree, and then I need the degree, and then I cash the degree on access to the next degree. So it's that we start becoming this commoditized vision of schooling, which is now all toward, accumulating the tokens of success. And that those tokens are now so familiar, they seem obvious like they've always been there, grades, credits, degrees. Uh, but once you start focusing on that, then you're focusing very much on the extrinsic part of schooling. What do I need to do to get the, uh, uh, the grade, the credit, and the degree? And the less I invest, to get the same degree, the better, more sensible uh, consumer I am. Nobody pays sticker price from a car if they can get it at a discount. And so why should you pay sticker price for your degree either?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the way I like to try to think of it and phrase it is that um, as I read the history of grades, what people thought would happen was that you'd introduce grades and people would care about learning and grades would be a measure of learning and really what happened was that people cared about grades and learning was something you kind of had to do to get grades it almost flipped the script in a way that i don't think the original proponents of grading anticipated very well
0: yeah and it's it's part of a general phenomenon that, that deals with metrics you heard of goodhart's law
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we should probably explain it for um, for folks who don't know it.
0: Yeah, I just I was I just love Goodhart's law. And the basic law is that once a metric becomes consequential, it's no longer a good metric. If you measure something um, as a, a, you know, like you've learning is I, I got a certain degree of learning then I can measure that. But once that metric becomes then a commodity that says, if I have that measure, good things happen to me, then it stops being a good measure because people learn how to game the system. How do I get the measure without the content? How do I get the form without the substance? It's sort of, it's a pressure toward formalizing substantive issues. And that's death to schooling, Uh, but it's also so, Embedded, it's hard to escape this notion that every substantive thing shifts toward a form and then the system revolves around the distribution and the accumulation of those forms.
1: So let's say that we were at the point where people in the late 1800s 1800s were saying, well, let's bring grades into school. We think that this will do really well. We think this will be a good measure, things like that. Uh, I don't know if you have an opinion on this. If you were there in that room... What would you have said? Is this something that we should unleash on schools? Or is this something that maybe we should be a little bit more cautious about?
0: I don't know. Uh, uh, that's, uh, I would have picturing <laughs> <laughs> this situation. I To me, there's something about that process that's hard to head off. Um, the uh, you need to have incentives. So you put incentives into the program and agreed as a way of giving an incentive. Um, but it's then very hard to control what the effect of that incentive is once it's in process. Mm. And it's hard to know how you avoid that. Uh, any incentive you come up with is gonna get commoditized in some way or another. And that system, any system is going to be gameable and then uh, i don't know i think that the tendency toward formalism is something that's just in the dna of schooling it's hard to eradicate the best you can do is to try to manage it and control it
1: mm. yeah yeah i mean it seems to me that uh you know i i teach in a college of education um and it's a very certification heavy field, right? So in order to become a teacher, you have to get a certification, but it's hard to figure out how you would do any sort of certification process without a grading system, right? Because in order to get a certification, you need to take certain classes. In order to know what classes you've taken, you need some, you know, even pass fail or something like that. But then you've introduced this, this grading system. So I know a lot of my friends, um, are in favor of kind of like abolishing any sort of grading process and kind of like you, I don't know if that can be done. You would have to undo things like the idea of certification as entry into a field like teaching or medicine, or I don't know if we're culturally willing or should be willing to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the advantage of grades and credits as degrees is that it becomes a kind of currency that makes life much easier for everybody involved. Teachers know what they're doing. Parents know what's happening in school. Uh, Employers know, okay, you have a degree. I assume that means something um, and we'll just use that because I don't want to sit down and spend two hours figuring out what all you know and what skills you have. I want a way of going through a hundred resumes and figuring which ones are promising. And the diploma, it's like, it's, it's better than nothing. You know, it gives me something and it's hard to, it's hard to ignore that. It's like, uh, there's a kind of efficiency element there. That's, uh, that you don't want to do without in some ways, even though you recognize that a lot of it is, uh, fuzzy.
1: Yeah. So let's move a bit to your latest book, which is about higher education. Um, and you call higher education in your title a perfect mess. So let's talk about what that means, a perfect mess, because higher education is uh, under siege from various quarters, depending on who you talk to. Right. So if you talk to people on the political left, it's really the the market forces. It's becoming more of a business than it should be. Uh, or if you talk to people on the, the right, it's becoming, you know, uh, decadent and, and overly costly and bureaucratic. Uh, and then everyone's worried that the funding for education is reducing over time. Um, that more of the sticker price is being owned by the student family. It's becoming more expensive, but you say this is a perfect mess and attempts to reform the system in various ways will potentially be, be bad things. So, so what does that mean that it's a perfect mess?
0: Yeah, I think the, uh, one of the things that struck me, and it goes back to our earlier conversation about educational markets, but one of the things that's distinctive about the American system of higher education is that it's not a system at all in the traditional sense. It, it was not created. Uh, nobody runs it. Uh, it's a radically decentralized system. Um, We don't even have any federal universities except the service academies. Um, We have the system where basically any governmental entity, the federal government, a state, a city, a county can start a school. Any group of individuals can get a corporate charter and start a college. This is... uh, So, we have 4,000 degree granting institutions in the US, public and private, and all over the place. And who's in charge? Uh, Nobody. There's a kind of competitive marketplace there where students look for courses for for colleges. Colleges seek to attract students. Uh, Employers use the colleges as ways to screen applicants. and it seems to work. And part of the thing to me that made it effective is that part of the reason why the American system, which was an embarrassment in the world in the 19th century, became like the kingpins of the world in higher education in the 20th century. The things that made it weak in the 19th or made it strong in the 20th, and that was the radical decentralization made it incredibly messy and academically embarrassing. There were no standards. Um, their quality w- was low. The faculty quality was pitiful. The learning going on was more. The, the, uh, nobody was checking on it. But all of those things by the 20th century meant that these, uni- these institutions were able to adapt. They could take advantage of opportunities. They could pursue particular forms of knowledge. They could develop instructional programs that they could tailor to particular populations. Uh, They were experimenting um, with knowledge production and with knowledge um, instruction. And the the result was a much more robust, uh, inventive, adaptive, um, and creative system and ones that are directly responsible to some education ministry in Paris that tells them, like, here's what we're doing here. Um, and so that's been, that was a real eye-opener to me as somebody who'd always been, um, it made me more of a fan of markets that I had been before and the kind of power of bottom-up.
1: I, I was actually going to ask when you said when you said that about, like, the French ministry, because I know one of the live debates in uh, higher ed today is whether we should have some sort of publicly funded higher ed for all. And I've always been kind of leery about that for a similar reason. It seems like that would mean that we serve one master. And I'm yep. not sure it's a master that we really want to serve. Um, but then again, I've always been a minority, I think, in that position. So I wonder if you have a, any kind of take on on that.
0: I mean, it's interesting. You look at it. The uh, institutional autonomy of individual universities is in some ways the best indicator of quality. The more autonomous they are, the higher quality. Um, an economist at uh, Stanford, uh, Carolyn Hoxby, did an interesting look at, she looked at new, uh, the university rankings across the, uh, the world. Um, and she looked at, she developed a measure for Autonomy and her measure, the key one was what percentage of your budget comes from the state, uh, as a sign of how much state control was. Since control tends to follow the money, and she found that for every percentage point that your, uh, your per, every percentage point that your state portion of your budget went up, you would drop. Four slots in the hierarchy of of higher ed. Um, likewise, for every percentage point that your income came from competitive grants like research grants, your um, your for every point that it went up, your your uh, your ranking would go up like six levels. So, autonomy is a really powerful measure of the kind of quality of an institution and so less control in some ways makes for better outcomes yeah
1: yeah i guess i've always kind of been or recently been of the mind that governments can do a lot in terms of redistributing funding more equitably but one of the things we need to be leery of is things like regulatory control that would often come from that like uh you know my fear with higher ed is that if we accept the idea of kind of a, a government-funded higher ed, governments are going to put constraints on what kind of higher ed they're willing to support. So you want a liberal um, arts yes. degree? Nope. No liberal arts degrees because we're not going to get a payoff for that culturally, which goes back to what you, we talked about earlier, right? Like, is what matters the person's ability to choose what they would like, or is it government's ability to say, we need this public good payoff?
0: Yep. Yeah. And so that's with government controls. It tends to do that. I remember the governor of Florida at one point was saying, why do we have people? Why are we paying people to get degrees in anthropology for that? Right. That's, right. Like, what's, what's the point? Should, there should be a business or math or something. That's something that's saleable, that's marketable. But Boy, that's a scary road to go down when you start saying this is uh let's try to tailor the outcomes we don't know what capabilities are going to pr- be productive in the future mm, and mm. Better off laying that letting that play out
1: yeah yeah i mean it seems like the the book you did on higher ed and the books you've done on on k-12 have a similar theme which is that these systems all serve many masters so it's not as simple as educating the kid full stop right is the purpose of school. It depends on who the master is you're trying to serve. And if I read it correctly and, and get the what we've talked about correctly, y- your answer is almost like this: these are kind of irresolvable tensions. Embrace the chaos. That's the yes. best we can do. Just embrace the fact that there are multiple parties and stakeholders and all will work out as well as it can.
0: Yeah, let me go back. Actually, this is something that I had to work my way through in my own work, and that is uh, when I first started out thinking about, after my first book, thinking about this democratic equality as a major goal for schooling and started developing this notion of these other goals, social efficiency and social mobility, and my original thinking was very, uh, like, Manichaean, it's like democratic equality was the good one and the other ones were destroying the school. Uh, They were debasing. The uh, the mission, and I started realizing after a while, you know, all of us want all three of those for schools. We want good citizens. We want pe- we want uh, people to be capable and work out there and in, the, in the workforce and be competent, and we want a chance to get ahead, or if we're already ahead, a chance to stay ahead. That's like that contradiction's in me. It's not like different forces out there, and it's it's not a bad thing. I mean, it's like, this is true. Think about the issue. If you're a parent yeah. uh, and you want, uh, you want everybody to have good schools for their kids, but you know, this is my kid and yeah. this, I, I want my kid in the best school I can. I still hope that other people get in really good schools, but first of all, I'm going to make sure my kid gets in. That's not an unreasonable thing to have. You can hold those contradictions in your head and play them out in practice. Yeah. So the contradiction is within us. It's not, and it's not like good guys and bad guys. It's just alternative things we want this complex institution to carry out. And no wonder it's complex. No wonder it's uh, a little messy. You know.
1: Mm-hmm.